I'm curious, uh, when, anybody, when, when you all woke up this morning, did anybody not have power? Seriously. No, this morning when you got it, none of you. We still don't have power at my house. Man, it's like winning the wrong lottery. Jeez. We, yeah. How long will food keep in a refrigerator that hasn't been opened? Um, yeah, I, I got up this morning, and um, as I said, no power. So, and, and I get up at about 5 o'clock on Sunday mornings. And I, I, I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. When I got to church, I was just glad my shoes matched. I mean, because you just don't realize how much you take that for granted. I was, I was trying to get ready by a candle. You know, I was using my flashlight and a candle to, to match everything up and, and prepare this morning. And, of course, I do everything on the computer. And I was like, uh-oh. Um, and I was able to kind of figure out a way around that. It, it, made, for a, it made for an interesting morning. But, yeah, we still, uh, we still don't have our power back. So I'm not sure who we upset, but somebody, um, somebody there... there yeah, well, um, anyway, I want to say um, we had a wonderful night here. I know some of you were with us Friday night um, for the movie The War Room. And I want to again thank not, everybody, not only everybody who came, but those who really put it together, Malcolm and Mary, uh, who are in the back there, who, who were instrumental in pulling that together, and a number of volunteers that were here and served. And it was a wonderful a wonderful night, and I highly recommend the movie if you haven't seen it to, to do so and, and rent it yourself. Uh, it was interesting, though, in the aftermath, one of the things I do, one of my, I don't know if it's a quirk of, of personality or just, just, you know, kind of my nature, but I like, to, um, I like to go kind of learn about some of the actors and actresses, especially in movies like that, because I'm kind of curious. What happened was we were watching the movie, I recognized some faces, not in the main characters, but some of the secondary characters that were in the movie. Uh, if you ever have done any Beth Moore studies, Beth Moore had a, an appearance in the movie. Uh, there's a co- comedian, a Christian community, comedian by the name of uh, Michael Jr., who was one of the, the kind of support characters in the movie. So I recognized some of them, but I didn't know anything about the, the primary actor and actress. So I went and did a little bit of, of research on them, and, and I read about the, the, the gentleman who was the, the, the husband, and I read about the woman that played the, the main character of the wife. And um, I learned some interesting things about her. She's a Christian speaker and, it, you know, tours and speaks. And, and so I, I thought this was fascinating as I learned these things about her. And so I do what I often do. I was like, I want to go share this with Tony because I was kind of impressed that I had taken the initiative and learned this stuff. So I walked into the bedroom and Tony's in there. And I said, Tony, I said, did you know that the woman who's the lead actress in that movie, The War Room, I said, do you know that she's a Christian speaker? And it's like... Tony's like, uh, yeah, her name's uh, Patricia Shire, and I've met her. <laughs> you ever seen what a balloon looks like when all the air gets let out all of a sudden? And I just kind of slunked away. And, um, and I was thinking about that, and I was like, you know, I didn't need to do all that research. I could have just asked my wife, and she could have told me all about her. And I thought, isn't that interesting? that I think sometimes, gentlemen, we don't give the women in our lives enough credit for what they know. Any women want to give me an amen to that? <laughs> our, uh, our mothers or our spouses or our sisters or our daughters, that sometimes we don't 
kind of recognize the wisdom that might already be right at their disposal and, and open to that. And, and that was a lighthearted way, but it was a, a lesson nonetheless that maybe sometimes I need to start with a conversation with the person who, you know, sleeps beside me every night. So um, that is a wonderful bridge into this text that we're going to read from this morning in John chapter 2. It is a somewhat, I think, familiar miracle to most of us. It is the miracle of the wedding of Cana. It is Jesus turning the water to wine. And it is a, it is a story that is so rich with, with um, symbolic meaning and truth that, that there's a dozen ways to approach this scripture and to learn from this story. But one of the things that this scripture sheds light on is how wise Jesus' mother was. And that's why I called the sermon Mother Knows Best, because in this case we learn some wonderful things about who Jesus was and who we're called to be just from the few things that we pick up from his mother, Mary, in this story. So here these words from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, that your word would speak, that we would believe. Where there is faith, may it grow. Where there is seeking, may answers be found. Where there is uncertainty, that we would hear the truth and be drawn to Christ and to one another. We pray in your holy name. Amen. You, most likely, are familiar with what we call the canonical Gospels, the canon. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They're called the canonical Gospels. You may not be familiar with what are often referred to as the non-canonical Gospels. They are ancient stories that were written purportedly about Jesus and his life and his ministry that... The early church believed and recognized to be inauthentic, not the gospels of, of eyewitnesses, not genuine stories about the life of Jesus. And so they're called non-canonical because the, the church and the leadership and, and by the leading of the Holy Spirit never invested 
any significance that these books contained the truth of who Jesus was. And so there's, there's a number of them, the, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, that are out there and, and, you know, dated usually a couple hundred years after the life of Jesus that the church doesn't put a lot of credibility in. But they can be fascinating reads nonetheless from a more, almost like a fictitious standpoint, the way you might read fiction. And, and I say that because I was reading from one of those Gospels this week, and it's called the Arabic Gospel of the Infancy of the, of the Christ. The Arabic Gospel of the Infancy of the Christ. And these, this, this writing tells all these stories from the childhood of Jesus, something that we don't get much almost at all in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so the writer, a couple hundred years, undoubtedly kind of filled in some blanks with some fanciful stories about what Jesus must have been like as a child. And, uh, and like I said, they're interesting from a fictitious standpoint. They're not always flattering of Jesus. Jesus does a lot of things that are very self-serving as a kid. He's kind of a brat at times in these Gospels. He does things like the kids, and I've, I've shared some of these stories over the years, his, his friends, and they're, they're playing with like clay, our version of, of Play-Doh, and they're making little animals the way kids would do. But Jesus has to one-up everybody, so he makes his little animals come alive and fly away. You know, and there's the story, and I know I've told this one before, of a young boy that falls off a roof and, and dies. And the parents blame Jesus, and they say, Jesus pushed him. And so the story goes, Jesus went down and he resurrects the kid. And he says, did I push you? And the kid says, no, don't blame Jesus. He didn't do it. And then the kid falls back over dead. <laughs> you know, so it's not, you know, and, and making kids kind of worship him. It's really not, like I said, I, I don't commend it to you because I believe there's any truth to it. I don't commend it to you at all. But it's out there. And, and it, you know, it gives you a perspective of the way people were thinking at the time. The reason I bring it up, there's another story in that non-canonical gospel. And it's, it deals with Jesus and his relationship with Joseph. And according to that writing, Joseph was not a good carpenter. He just wasn't good. And he constantly messed things up. And he'd get the, you know, the old adage, um, measure twice and, and cut once. Kind of thing. It was like Jesus or Joseph would measure none and cut kind of thing. And so things never fit right. And so Joseph would bring Jesus along. And when something didn't fit, he would give it to Jesus. And Jesus would lay his hands on it and he would shrink it or he would, he, would, he would shrink it or he would expand it so it would fit perfectly. So after Jesus got a hold of everything, it was wonderful. And so Jesus fixed everything Joseph messed up. That was kind of the way the story goes. Now, I don't believe there's any truth to that at all. At least truth to the details of the story. But I believe there may be a little insight that we can kind of pull out. And we're stretching a little bit. But to see that there is something that is true that that story would point to. And that is, Jesus was a fixer. Not of carpentry, but a fixer of much deeper needs. And when we approach this story in John chapter 2, we get some insight into some things that Mary understood about Jesus and what it meant to follow Jesus just from this very brief story. And Mary knew Jesus was a fixer. Now, the backdrop is interesting. The first miracle recorded in the Gospels is this story. And I find that fascinating because for many of us, it seems like the most insignificant of the miracles, at least for me. 
If I was going to write down, and if we were going to spend some time and put up a big chalkboard and say, okay, let's write down all the miracles of Jesus. Let's write down all the things that we know the gospel says he did. And we wrote things like feeding of the 5,000 uh, with loaves and fish and, and calming the sea in the midst of the storm and um, healing, you know, giving sight to the blind and, and the lame to walk and, and resurrecting the dead. If we were to, to list these and we would say, let's prioritize them in impact and significance and value I would bet for most of us, the miracle that would seem to have the least impact and the least significance would be this one, turning water to wine. Because this is a social faux pas. This is what has happened. The backdrop of the story is it's a wedding banquet. Now, we think of, of, of wedding banquets or, or receptions in the way that we experience them. We have a wedding, and maybe for two or three or four hours, however long, after the day of, you'd have the banquet. Party ends that night. Bride and groom go off to the honeymoon, and everybody returns to, to life as usual. That's not the way biblical weddings were. Biblical weddings were a week-long celebration, and it was a party, and it was on the, the bride's family to host the party. And what happens here is on day three, there is a major social faux pas. The wine has run out, and that is a major cause of embarrassment for the family. Now, I'm not saying that that's not significant, but I would say that most of us, if we put that on a scale with blind receiving sight, lame walking, dead rising, that's pretty far down there. The scriptures say that Mary turns to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. Now, understand what she's saying. She's not just making a statement so that he understands what has happened. She's implying, hey, Jesus, think you could step in here? think you could do something here? And Jesus' response is interesting. He looks at her and he says, woman, why do you come to me with this? Think about that. He calls his mother woman. How many of you ever called your mother woman? <laughs> How many of you ever did it twice? <laughs> yeah. Or your wife? Or your, no. And, and that seems kind of, it seems kind of abrupt and it seems kind of sharp. It almost seems kind of rude. I understand we're dealing with translation issues. You know, we're dealing with static words on a page. We're not dealing with inflection and emotion and, and uh, some of those things. So don't, don't get too caught up in kind of the abrupt nature of the words. But actually focus on what's happening. Mary is coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, fix this. And Jesus is caught in this dilemma because this is the beginning. And this is probably not the way even Jesus thought it was going to begin. And so he says, why, why now? Why this? Why this time? But here's what's interesting. In the very next breath, and, and, and John gives us no details about any internal dialogue Jesus was having, any, any way he came to this, just in the very next breath, it becomes very clear, Jesus is going to do something. He's going to step in. And I think this is a wonderful, wonderful truth that lets us know something about the character of Jesus and the nature of God. And that is this. If it matters to us, it matters to God. If it matters to us, it matters to God. Because think about it. This miracle isn't on scale in our worldview with some of the other things Jesus did. But he's in a place where there's a need. And Jesus meets the need. And we need to recognize that there is no need too small in our lives that we can't take it to God. See, there's two ends of a spectrum that we sometimes can fall into. A trap, if you will. Two, two dangerous um, spiritual mindsets. One is that we become 
completely narcissistic. We become completely self-centered, that there is no problem in the world beyond our problems. There is no struggle beyond our struggles. We become incredibly myopic, and the only thing we see is our need and our pain and our want and our, uh, and our difficulties. And that is a dangerous spiritual place to be. It's a dangerous emotional place to be. It's a dangerous relational place to be. If you've ever known somebody like that, it is very, very hard to have a relationship with somebody that way. But the reality is I have met very, very few people in my lifetime that are that myopic, that are that self-centered. We all have our moments, but that are on that end of the... I, I, just, I can't even think of anybody, though I'm sure if I sat down, I might come up with something. That's not usually our trap. But I've found far more people, including myself, that fall into the other end of the spectrum. And that is, we think, when compared to others, our needs are not really that important. They're not that significant. You know, I, I've told you that every Tuesday when the prayer group gathers and we pray over the cards that you share with us, that for me becomes a um, perspective adjustment every week for me. Because I come in just like everybody else on a Tuesday morning and I have my stuff going on. Sometimes I'm frustrated. Sometimes I'm dreading some things I got to get done that week. Sometimes I'm overwhelmed. Sometimes it's a great week. Whatever the case is, I bring that stuff in just like everybody else does. And I sit there and I read over these prayer cards that you share and some of the struggles and some of the, the, the things that you're asking for and the places you're experiencing God and the places you need to experience God and some of the, some of the daunting realities that, that we face. And it reorients my perspective. But it also can become dangerous for me because what sometimes happens is I will fall into the trap of going, gosh, I'm sorry, Lord, my issues don't matter because they're not as significant as what this person is facing or that person is facing. And while it may be true that my issues are not as serious or as, as maybe life-threatening or whatever that may be, it becomes dangerous when any of us dismiss what matters to us. When somehow we begin to think that this doesn't matter to God because it's not as serious as what somebody else is dealing with. John chapter 2 teaches us different because this isn't the same kind of need that Jesus would encounter. But Jesus cared nonetheless. And Mary knew he would. Mary knew he would. If it matters to us, it matters to God. When I was about six or seven years old, I'll never forget one afternoon, a, a memory that has burned into my brain because I was in tears because I was so upset. And I went to my mom because I was upset because I couldn't find my harmonica. I couldn't find my harmonica no matter where I looked. It had been in the toy box and it wasn't there. And if you said to me, well, gosh, I didn't know you played the harmonica. I would tell you this. I didn't and I don't. I don't know why the harmonica mattered. I have no recollection of why on this day, at this moment, this harmonica, which I didn't know how to play, it was a noisemaker, mattered to me, but it did. So much so that as a you know, in the, in the skewed perspective of a six and seven-year-old, I went to my mom in tears because I couldn't find it. Now, this is where my fatherly instincts would probably have gone in a wrong direction. My instincts as a parent would have been to look at six or seven-year-old me and say, look, Chris, you don't play the harmonica. You don't usually care about the harmonica. Relax. Don't worry about it. It'll turn up. And it'd been done. But that's not what my mom did. My mom, much better at this parenting thing than I am, 
I remember she dropped what she was doing, and she began to help me look in every nook and cranny of my room to find that harmonica. And we still couldn't find it. And then I remember she said, Chris, come here. And she took my hand, and she said, let's pray. And we prayed that I would find my harmonica. Now, here's the thing. If you came up to me after the sermon and you said, Chris, did you ever find that harmonica? This is what I'm going to tell you. I have no idea. I don't remember. I don't remember the rest of the story. I don't remember whether we found it or didn't find it. But I remember my mom looked for it. And I remember we prayed for it. And I remember what she taught me in that moment. She taught me in that moment that if it mattered to me, it mattered to God. And I could pray about that. And I could take that to the Lord. It didn't mean we'd find it, but it meant God cared about it. That's what John chapter 2 does. It reminds us. If it matters to us, it matters to God. And so Mary knew that. Mother knew that. So she brings the miracle to Jesus before he may have been ready to seek the miracle himself. And he meets the need. Jesus didn't set up miracles. Jesus just happened to be in places where need was, and he met it. Max Lucado says that Jesus never attended a funeral he didn't interrupt. And he interrupted them by bringing them back to, from the dead, is what he did. But he met needs. Where people were hurt, he stepped in to meet needs. If it matters to us, it matters to God. That's what Mary knew. But the other thing that Mary knew is she knew what the key to discipleship was. She knew what it meant, and she gives a witness, not only to the servants, but to those disciples of Jesus who are there witnessing this. She, in one sentence, sums up for them and for us what true discipleship looks like. And it's found in verse 5, and it is so easy to miss. But when she knows Jesus is going to act, this is what she says. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, hear this, do whatever he tells you. Do what, if you have the Bible, you underline in your Bible, you underline that. You highlight it, you circle it, whatever. There it is right there. You want to know what discipleship looks like? Do whatever he tells you. That's the heart of a disciple. The heart of somebody following Jesus is the heart of somebody who desires, who desires to do whatever it is the Lord Jesus calls us to do. Calls you to do. Calls me to do. It's obedience. Now, hear me say, I'm not saying that's always easy to discern. I'm not saying it's always crystal clear what Jesus is calling us to do, and it's always as, as plain and obvious as we want it to be. We, we struggle with that. We disagree sometimes on that. But it needs to be the motivation of a heart after Jesus to do whatever he tells you to do. And that's what he, she says to the servants. And why was that important? Because Jesus was about to tell her to do something that was completely nuts. Jesus tells them to go to the water, the water that is used for the purification, the water that is used to clean the utensils to make them ritually pure so they could be used in the banquet, the water that was used for people to wash their hands so they could be ritually clean to partake of the food, the dishwater. And he says, fill it. Fill the jars with this water. And then, oh, go serve that to the master. Really? Seriously? I mean, this is not an insignificant thing. You want me to serve water to who? That's what Jesus says. And they did it. And when they do, 
it is the best wine that he'd ever tasted. So much so that he says to the one throwing the party, why'd you do this backwards? Why'd you do this? Most of the time you serve the, and don't miss it, you serve the good wine first when people care, and you serve the lesser wine later when people don't taste it anymore. And he says, you did it backwards. This is the best. Why? Because you do whatever he tells you to do. Jesus takes something that seems insignificant and unimportant, and he makes it, transforms it into something of great value and worth. That's what Jesus does with us. That's what Jesus does with the hearts of those who are willing to do whatever he tells you to do. That wine begins to represent those whose hearts are open to the transforming work of God in Jesus Christ. And I thought about this, the significance of what doing what Jesus calls us to do looks like. And, and I thought about that water. I mean, you think about it. If I, I filled up a basin or a big bowl full of water, and we used it to wash our hands or to wash some utensils, what are you going to do with that water when you're done cleaning the utensils? You're going to dump it over. You're getting rid of it. It's discarded. But Jesus takes something that it was meant to be dumped over, and he transforms it into something that is meant to be poured out to be poured out for others. That's what the wine, all of a sudden it wasn't, it wasn't insignificant water. It was valuable wine to be shared at the banquet. Our lives are transformed into something. What is, I, I can't say to you what God is calling you to do. But I can guarantee you this, that if it's of Christ, it's going to bless somebody else. Okay, hear that. If it's of Christ, it's going to have an impact on somebody else. It's going to be a blessing because the way of Jesus is the way of those who follow Jesus, and that is to be poured out. Think about the communion ritual. This is my blood of a new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. We're called to pour out. Wine doesn't keep forever. You can't hoard that. You can't go store that for months and months and keep it for your own use. You better share it. It's going bad. In about five days, it's going to be vinegar. Pour it out. That's what Jesus does with his life, and that's what he calls us to do with ours. Mary knew that. Mary knew that. And so she shares her wisdom. She shares her wisdom. If it matters to us, it matters to him. And do whatever he tells you to do. When you do, when you seek that obedience, not perfection, but obedience, God begins to work in our lives the same way he does with a little bit of water. He makes something that is extraordinary, extraordinary. And that's what he does with our lives. Let that be. I, I thought that would be a wonderful mission for the church. We seek to be a church that wants to do whatever he tells us to do. That's easy to say. That's hard to live into. That is hard to live into. But let be that be the desire of our hearts. In doing so, we grow closer to Jesus. And we pour ourselves into others. Our mission, our family, our relationships, our work, the ways that we can witness Christ. If it matters to us, it matters to God. Do whatever he tells you to do. That's the mother of Jesus speaking. And in this case, and in many cases, mother knows best. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the wisdom that you give us through, through Mary, through the insights she shared, and for the example of faithfulness that this miracle teaches and what we learn about Jesus and ourselves in it. Help us to grow in faith. Help us to grow in obedience in the way of Christ.
That is our prayer, and we lift it in your precious and holy name. Amen.